Well, welcome once again to Booth One, your site for the art of lively conversation, where Roscoe and I cover the worlds of the performing arts and popular culture. I'm feeling kind of finger snappy and carefree today. How about you, Roscoe? I'm as restless as a willow in a windstorm. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm as dizzy as a daisy in a storm. Who is that voice? I don't know if there's someone who has joined us. Our special guest in the booth today is one of Cabaret World's most in-demand performers and a staple of the Windy City music scene, the Windy City being our hometown of Chicago, the unbelievably talented and beautiful Miss Becky Menzi. Welcome, Becky. Hi, guys. Hey. Three-time three-time winner of an After Dark Award for Outstanding Cabaret Artist. It's been said of her that hers is a talent that not only warms, but breaks your heart. It was my mother who said that. (laughs) (laughs) To the Chicago Tribune. (laughs) You and your musical partner, uh, Tom Michael, you played at my last wedding. I did. And I tell a story about that, about Kurt Elling having that brand new baby. Well, that was the actual reception. I, that was the reception. Yeah. And he had the baby in a carrier over his chest, was singing into a microphone. And all I could imagine was this, I think the baby was a week old. Or uh, yeah, he almost had to cancel singing for yeah. us because the, the, they had the baby like a week earlier. Yeah, and that baby was in his chest with him singing. And... People were sobbing. Weeping. Oh, Weeping. It was beautiful. Yeah, oh. with that, with our, our first dance, he sang That's All. I, I, I was there. I witnessed all of <laughs> I, this. Well, I remember you yeah. being there. <laughs> just, just reminding uh, you and, and telling our listeners. Hey, what's going on, Becky? How are you? I'm doing great. You That's are good. a busy lady, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your hectic schedule to spend some time with us in the booth today. We were just in the, the other room, and... The topic everyone on everyone's mind all the time, of course, is Hamilton. And as you were getting to talking about Hamilton, you said sort of parenthetically, well, you know, I was in New York to sing at Carnegie Hall, and I thought I wanted to go see Hamilton. I'm like, whoa, 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 what? You were singing at Carnegie Hall? Why, why were you at Carnegie Hall? What was that? This time at Carnegie Hall, I was brought in by the Mabel Mercer Foundation, Tom, Michael, and I, who um, sing together around the country. We were brought in to sing on a Cole Porter birthday celebration, 125 years yeah. of birthday at Carnegie Hall on June 7th. I was going to be in New York, and I knew I wanted to see Jesse Mueller do Waitress, and I wanted to see Hamilton and not remortgage my house. Wow. So what did you sing? What did you sing as part of the current I celebration? did a mashup of So In Love that was rather Sweeney Todd-esque with all of you, well, you know... I love to gain complete control of you. It was a little Glenn Close. <laughs> and then our arrangement of Too Darn Hot, which was pretty hot. Wow. I just said Kern. I met Cole Porter. This Cole is the Porter. Cole Porter year. Okay? I did that presentation at the Grand Park Music Festival this year. A few episodes ago, we published an excerpt of uh, that evening where I uh, mm-hmm. talked to Kevin Stites, the musical right. director, and, and a couple of the performers. That was a fun day. Yes. That was a fun night. Becky, I want to ask you right off, you and I have been friends for a long time, and I know an awful lot about you, but there are many things I don't know about you. You were born in and grew up in a place called Pierston, Indiana, is that right? Population 492, zip code E-I-E-I-O. <laughs> yes. You are a Hoosier. I'm a Hoosier. You know what? I don't even think Hoosiers really know what a Hoosier is. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what, what the heck is a Hoosier? Because I've never known. A country bumpkin, I yeah. think. Cole yeah. Porter is a Hoosier, and he's not really a country bumpkin. Where 
and how did your love for music first become apparent? Was it, was it typically as a kid you took piano lessons and then you sort of advanced from there? Or I did. My parents, my father had a musical ear. He never sang melody to anything. He'd be in the car and Red Roses for a Blue Lady would come on and he would sing the harmony part. So I had an ear. But they bought a piano from a woman who worked with my mother, a gorgeous, big, upright piano. And I lived in a lake region. And my father and this other, my father was a skinny, lanky guy. And they put this heavy, upright piano in a pickup truck, made it all the way around the hills and curves of Lake Tippecanoe into Pearson, Indiana. And as the truck turned and the a rear passenger wheel went into a water grate, the piano just flipped out. <gasps> oh and no! Exploded pieces of ivory and string and splinters oh, of no. wood. And then I think I was guilted into just <laughs> them in my mind. We they got it. I cried for three days. We got a new piano, and I I love to play. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it shows. Still do. I still do. Yeah. And it, not only it shows on stage, but you can hear it in your recordings. And we're going to play a little bit of your music throughout uh, performances that you and Tom, or, or you by yourself, or you with your female compatriots mm-hmm. sing. Um, so you'll hear a little bit of that in and out of, of this episode. cabaret rooms and venues all over the world, including, as we've talked about, Carnegie Hall. <laughs> that cabaret room, that intimate cabaret room yes. Carnegie yes. Hall. Yes. Did they put in tables on the stage so, with little lights so they could sit you and drink? To serve drinks. And no. What, what's your favorite place you've ever performed in? Ooh. Uh, I would say I love to perform at the Auditorium Theater. I've done the on-table, the stage where they put Ticato tables on, and you look at the artist and then the view of the auditorium. But just this year, I performed with Rich Daniels and the City Lights Orchestra and four other singers, with, and you know, singing with a big band and working with an orchestrator. That was fun. And I would say the other really wonderful moment that I had that I will never forget is Town Hall. And it was uh, the Mabel Mercer Foundation, uh, their New York City Cabaret Convention. And Tom and I had done it before, but it was the first night we were really there as a duo, and we had decided to give ourselves a year and really see how this duo thing worked Mm -hmm. out. Because when we would sing together, people kind of really responded. And we walk in that day, and you usually find out where you are, third in the first act or wherever you are. And he had us close the gala grand opening at Town Hall. Wow. And he looked at us, and he went, kids, do me proud. And we ran to Carnegie Hall, and we took out a rehearsal room and double practiced. And um, it was great. And then we were invited to this party at Elaine's, and 
we walked into cast party when it was at the King Kong room, and Jim got us right up to sing. And it was one of the, we went back to the hotel and said, I think we need to be business partners. And so for me, that whole moment, and t- I had an affection for Town Hall because it was my first place in New York that I had sang. I said I needed you You said you would always stay It wasn't me who changed but you And now you've gone you see that now you're gone and I'm left here on my own that I have to follow you and beg you to come home you don't have to say Stay forever, I will understand. Believe me. Do you play much outside of the country? We did. We sang on a cruise ship. Well, we boarded the ship at Hong Kong, and then we sang through North and South Vietnam. And uh, the, Viet- the Vietnam tour. <laughs> There's radio. Well, it was one of those world tours where they travel. You know, seniors either retired to Florida or on a world cruise, mm-hmm. and <laughs> so they were cruising around the world for three months. And they would bring in different headliners to do parts of legs of the tour. So we were flown there. We did two 45-minute shows. They flew us to Hong Kong. Then we had full passenger status. I would have never chosen. Um, you know, Ho Chi Minh City. I would have never chosen some of those places to go to. Fascinating. Halong Bay, stunning. And so that was great. And we have did a sailing ship uh, that was predominantly a gay cruise throughout St. Bart's and was the most turbulent of Tom was holding onto a pole and not in that kind of gay way <laughs> and um and uh it but it was a just a we were nauseous most of the but so we, i've done some and uh, but mostly we work around the midwest and then in you know around the country a little bit here what is the future of cabaret it's my favorite thing to do i love the great american songbook i always have even as is a child I, I remember being 16 and someone saying for god's sakes please listen to david bowie and I, w- I would try to listen to rock music. It never interested me. It was always back to Barbara and Judy. But I worry about its survival. There are fewer, fewer and fewer places to hear music like this. Am I looking at this through the wrong lens, Becky? No, I don't think so. But I, I think that your lens perhaps is changing. Now, I work a lot with Michael Feinstein and the, and the Great American Songbook Foundation, which focuses on high school students and kids. They're trying to keep their music before, prior to 1960, alive, so that they know Cole and Kern and Gershwin and Porter and Judy Garland. So that's a big part of who I am, but I do believe that the Great American Songbook is changing, and 
now Tom and I are touring with our Billy Joel, our piano men show, Billy Joel, Michael Feinstein, and Barry Manilow. And the girls sell out. Um, girls Like Us, the songs of Carole King, Carly Simon, and Joni Mitchell. Mm. And those songs were written, those were in the 60s. And so that is 50, 60 years ago. So I think that the Great American Songbook, perhaps, even though the moniker of that name ended in 1960, it's expanding. And as I see new artists and how we're also evolving to not, our audience was dying off, some of them. Mm. And uh, yet the Cole Porter show at the auditorium sold like gangbusters. So there's still people who, like you, love that music. What I love to do is a mix of both because I do believe that we have to find a way to keep those songs alive but also attract audiences that are older than 75. Or younger than 75. (laughs) No. <laughs> I know my people. No. Well, are you are you, a, are you a Laura Benanti fan? I love her. Well, you know she just debuted at uh, the Cafe Carlisle right. in a show, uh, and the uh, New York Times Stephen Holden called it uh, supreme command, a thrilling voice, and a wild sense of humor, and said that the evening was a sensation. Well, wow. then bless her. She's obviously not from the Midwest because he doesn't. He rarely doesn't like that Midwestern sensibility. <laughs> really? But she's she's amazingly talented. Right. In some of the stories she told of her adventures in show business, described disabling stage fright and technical mishaps during performances. Uh, she exhibited a fearless self assurance as she blithely sailed through a program that ran from Rodgers and Hammerstein to Tori Amos. I Love mean, that. She, there you go. She had a huge uh, range. of of topics on which to sing about. And on top of that, Miss Benanti is pregnant with her oh, first child. Congratulations. Wow. Yeah. She was on a TV show that was kind of Chicago filmed here and based here called the Playboy Club, that awful Playboy Club show that was out there for a while. Yet she was wonderful. She didn't sing, but she was really you, you just saw her last year I, and I she loves me. I saw her and, and she loves me and I sprung for a top ticket and I, I got a ticket at the last minute and I was in the front row, which I love. Uh-huh. And it was perfect. It was a low stage, and it was it was as if they were performing in my living room. Oh. And I, I also have a big hearty laugh. So the male lead like smiled and winked at me oh. when he took his curtain call because I had been, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. you know, I'd been yeah. I'd been an active participant in the show. The, the full power of Miss Benanti's voice lent the sound of music and operatic heft. Stephen Holden goes on to tell us, uh, but through the evening, the beauty of her singing vied with an impulsive zaniness. Something that is noticeable in all of your performances, well, most of your performances that I've seen anyway, especially with Tom, is that there's a, there's a merriment, there's a playfulness, there's a kind of let's toy with the, the music and let's toy with the audience. Do you, do you guys consciously think about how you can kind of flip things a little bit on their head? I love the word toy. <laughs> and, uh, I, I will say that I, I think shows should be entertaining. And I don't want a dissertation when I go out to see. I want to learn something. I want to perhaps think of a song from a new vantage point. But Tom and I do play with each other. Some of that we write. And often if I feel that we are maybe know the lines too much and uh, aren't fresh with our audience, I might surprise him, maybe, perhaps. I've been known to do that. 
but yes, I, you have, you have I, been. I, I think that an audience wants to see you be real. And humor is a part of my life. Whether you get my humor or not, population 492 zip code EIEIO. You were probably the funniest person in Pearson, Indiana. <laughs> well, there are, there are more people now. Who knows? Not now. that that's a very high bar. No, do you go back? Do, do, do you ever do returning? Local hero returns. No, well, it's certainly not local hero, um, but I we are going back to sing with a symphony, the Symphony of the Lakes, which is in Winona Lake, which is eight miles from my home. And I now kind of think of Warsaw Winona Lake as my home. And we're doing our holiday concert with the symphony there. And we occasionally get back. A wagon, there was a theater there, the Wagonwheel Theater that I mm. grew up in. I, Faith Prince, amazing Broadway people worked at. I learned so much about theater there. I, I really credit working or going to Wagonwheel as a kid. That theater is very special to me. Was, so, that was an old dinner theater, right? And no, it never was a dinner it was theater. Never there was a, dinner a couple theater. of Wagonwheels, okay. but this was not. It was a theater in the round. It used to be a tent. It just gave me a love for theater, which translated into cabaret because it's all about the lyric. And for me, and me as a musical theater coach, or I teach class at Porchlight, and I taught at Northwestern at Junked, uh, which means, actually, the definition means um, no benefits, poor pay. And um, <laughs> yeah. humor, ha, 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 that's me. That was, that was going to be one of my questions. What, what does an adjunct professor do? They, they get no benefits and very low pay. Well. But you learn a lot, and it was a gift that Dominic Massimi gave me that I didn't really think I wanted to teach, and it has changed my life. Did you start out like many of us? Did you start out wanting to be a stage performer? Did were you hit by the theater bug and and uh, eventually music sort of took over your life a little bit more or did you never really want to do that? I didn't think globally or long range. And it's probably served me well. It, I didn't I think when I was younger. If you gave me an opportunity and my gut thought I could at least do a serviceable job and I would be proud of my work, I would take it. So I went to college because the music brought me joy. I knew I didn't want to teach. I really didn't think through a smart way of making a living in this. I uh, worked at Wagon Wheel. Uh, I went to um, an audition and played for somebody who wanted to get hired at that theater at the Cincinnati Conservatory. I knew all of those actors because I'd seen them since I was 14. And I said to the musical director, I said, I sent you an audition tape for me to play. And he did. He goes, I I probably didn't listen to it. He goes, play for auditions. And all these college kids from the Cincinnati Conservatory Music came in, and they were so disappointed it wasn't the regular piano player because their music needed to be transposed, all this stuff. And I went, well, I'll transpose it. And by the end... On site. On site. Wow. And by the end of it, I got the job... And he goes, we want you there. So it's been opportunities that have served me. I never wanted to teach. Dominic Massimi said, do you think, you know, we hear that you're a great coach. Do you think you could come up with a syllabus to come talk to the dean about a student-assisted seminar to help make the transition from learning about music and theater as a craft to selling yourself as a product? And I went, oh, that's, yeah, I could do that. And did it, and then I ended up staying for 17 years. I think my whole game plan has been, I want to grow, I want to learn something new, pay attention to opportunities, and the ones that I really want, try to make happen more. But I didn't go to theater and think, oh, I want to star on Broadway. I think I had people, because I'm larger, I had people say to me, you'll never be a Broadway star because you aren't a size four. 
And I thought, well, you, no, maybe you're wrong. Or maybe I won't. I've always kind of owned who I am, you know, even dating or whatever or with friends. You like me, you don't. Yeah. And um, so I kind of, for me, thought I, I can entertain. I can be, I can have a good career in music. But I never was that person that thought I want to be a star. Mm. I want to be a Broadway star. Would I love to uh, be in a show on Broadway? Would I love to be Bette Midler's understudy in Hello, Dolly? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, all for the fun of it and the great art. And, you know, it'd be fun. Oh, you'd be fantastic. There you go. Know. <laughs> you could do the Tuesdays. You know, she's not doing Mondays and I, Tuesdays. Oh, so man, you could do I'd be there. And then the rest of the week, you could play in the pit. Ex- oh, you no, could play the no. show. There it goes, always goes back to the... No, they, they make good, good dollars in those Broadway pits. Um, hey, this is an odd segue. Do you know any mental health professionals, Roscoe? How about you, <laughs> Becky? Most of my fans. Yeah. Well, we're speaking of show business. I, I, I like to give these people a plug every now and then, as you know. Um, the therapy players are holding um, auditions uh, for their improvisational comedy troupe. These are all... Mental health professionals, We've psychologists, go. psychiatrists. Yes. Well, you know they were they were scheduled to play at this uh, uh, Twenty Seven Live Club, which is just downstairs from our studio here. But that uh, facility closed a couple of really? months ago. They went out of business. But they are playing in Oak Park. They're looking for uh, recruits to premiere their all psychotherapist comedy improvisation troupe now in its fourth year. And uh, you can go to www.therapyplayers.com, find out more information about their auditions and, and how you can this. get in there. Can, can you imagine what an evening with them would be like? It would, the, because you said it's sketch comedy or improv? Improv comedy? It's improv. It's, it's improv. Totally improv. I would be there in a moment. Here's, um, here's a photograph, Roscoe, of some of the healthcare professionals <laughs> that are part of the troupe. Anyway, are you a mental health professional? with training and or experience with, with, with improvisational comedy, then come to our auditions. <laughs> exactly. That would work for Hilarious. me because I work with cabaret singers all the time. I kind of And they're about the craziest people health, in the world. I think I'm a mental health professional. Roscoe, who's your favorite cabaret uh, performer that you've seen oh, in your in your gosh. wide and varied travels? You you go a lot. You've well, been in, to Davenport. In, in the purest you've been sense, in New York. I would say probably my my favorite would be Barbara Cook. Did you, are you a Barbara Cook fan? I am. I have a. I did a. I have a beautiful little Barbara Cook moment in my life. I'm a, I've seen her live. Um, she was receiving an award from the Hartford Bushnell Theater, and I was doing some entertaining the year before. Uh, it was John Raid and Ann Miller. <gasps> uh, Barbara Cook was up on stage, and the girls, the younger girls who were at the theater, knew me because I had been I'd sang there last year for the event, and they were showing me. Uh, the tent, the beautiful area that was um, that where people were going to be at dinner time, and Barbara Cook looked at us, and they didn't want to interrupt her or get in her way, and they ran out, and I looked back at her, and I smiled, and waved, and I thought, oh, I'd love to talk to her, and then I didn't, and then I got to talk to her later that night, and she said, oh, I wanted so much to go with all of you, and I thought, oh, they were trying to protect you, I didn't want to intrude, oh. and. You know, you're traveling all over. You're alone. You're. I sh- it's before I knew better. And some people don't. Ann Miller kind of wanted to stay in her dressing room. Mm. But she looked, and I thought, oh, she's, what is it? Does she want her space? Does she want that? But beautiful interpreter, beautiful woman. And I think it would be really interesting. I think about somebody like Barbara Cook, who um, was an, is an icon, 
And as you get older, your body doesn't start to do vocally or physically maintain because she was signed up to do a show. Wasn't she going to do a one-woman show? And she wasn't really able to handle the work demands of the physical demands of that. I, I want to sing as, and play piano. I could give up maybe singing, but I want to play piano as long as I live. stars above but not for me with love to lead the way besides barbara cook uh, becky who who else might be would you say an inspiration for you who do you who do you admire and possibly attempt to emulate at times um, i i know that you and michael feinstein are close friends and well, i don't know that we're very close friends but we're friends and i yeah. i lo- literally love him he well. is really a great great guy and what he's doing um to keep the songs of the american songbook alive for young people and the way he coaches them and the way he deals with them uh in such an affirming intelligent lifting a beautiful way uh that getting to chance to do a little bit of work with him on the songbook foundation um has just reminded me what a fabulous guy he is as far as a performer i i think with a couple of the girls i really admire are girls i occasionally perform with sally mays when she first came out on broadway and the music on her cabaret album you know, I'm kind of a small-town girl with a streetwise attitude. That's Sally Mays. We gravitate to the same material. When she comes and coaches in town, I usually play for those kind of things and work with her, and we've done a couple of duo shows. I think she's really talented. Karen Mason, I have had the honest fortune of playing for Karen Mason, and her voice is a force of nature. She's also one of the nicest people in the world. I have maybe changed to where... The business has shown me that I thought when they made magic musically, they were just going to be magical to be friends, too. And so when I find somebody that, for me, not only makes magic musically, but really has an oh, is open-hearted and real, not bull crap, and, and uh, just authentic, and they just want to make music. You know, we're all looking, and everybody, just, just like me, we're looking for jobs and chances to share our music. Yeah. So are those girls. Yeah. 
What did, do you remember um, Julie Wilson? I loved Julie Wilson. Julie Wilson remembered my late husband's name. There's somebody who performed up until, um, a, you know, the end. And there were some people who thought maybe she shouldn't because of dignity or different things that happen as you age. But she was a master. She would go out and go see young talent all the time. She was... I think cabaret royalty. You know, I worked with Julie Wilson on a Broadway show. Which show? Legs Diamond? Legs Diamond. I oh. think maybe one of her few Broadway shows. And this, of course, was awfully late in her career. Could not have been more delightful. Occasionally, I had to, as a stage manager, I had to run out on this moving set, which was these two giant spinning rooms. And she would find a way to get lost inside the middle of them trying to make her exit because there were three rooms attached and I remember a couple of occasions having to go out and steer her into the wings and could, she couldn't have been more grateful about it, I'm sure. Because they made You'll her wear these that high too, and I'm much and younger these, than her. They made so. her wear these beaded gowns. and uh, She it, made her. Mm. She loved to wear beaded gowns. Uh, she would wear her beaded gowns, though, in the last year with Uggs. So, oh. But you know what? <laughs> no, I'm serious, she would. She was comfortable. She Your feet... She still looked like her trademark, and she loved to sing. One of the true golden well, girls yeah. of cabaret. What is it called? What, what she did at the end of her career when she could no longer sing? It's, it's speak singing. You know, something? some people call it sprecht singing, and I would say that she still. I think she thought of herself as singing, and there might have been some tone there, but you know, she certainly couldn't sing all of the pitches. And I don't know if you saw her perform in the last few years of her life, but. She's still selling the song better than most thirty-year-old yeah. cabaret wannabes, uh, Becky Minzy. Yeah. And thirty-year-old, well, look what I just did to myself <laughs> on air. Oh my God! I lied about Pierce's population around. and my age. <laughs> You've on been the around show. forever, and yet you're still only thirty years old. <laughs> forever. Speaking of being around forever, Roscoe, you'll like this. This may have to go on, on, on my Christmas list from you. Dorothy, Rose, Blanche, and Sophia are finally getting their own action figures. I read that. Yes, the Golden Girl action figures add senior sass to your toy collection. I'm and getting I, I'm I, a, friend, a friend who will love that. Yeah, uh, they may not be seen on TV anymore, but you can still welcome them into your home. These retirees are uh, poseable vinyl figures standing three point. 0.75 inches tall, which is fairly substantial, and they are ready for action. Where? Where? Are they, like, on Amazon? Well, the set is from Funko and includes all four silver-haired roommates played by, famously, B. Arthur, Betty White, Rue McClanahan, and Estelle Getty. They're making the kind of bold retro fashion choices that even superheroes would be jealous of. Uh, I'd like to see Batman pull off Blanche's bold red pants suit. <laughs> bold red pants suit. Rose is in a pretty pink dress. While Dorothy wears her usual pants and patterned cardigan, that would be the B. Arthur uh, role. Sophia might be wearing an almost sexy blue dress, but it comes armed with a purse that she can use to smack some sense into anyone who needs it. Well, these are from Funko. Uh, the four-figure set costs only twenty-five dollars. Wow. Funko. F U N. K-O. I don't have a website for it, but it will be available from participating Target stores. I think that's not going to last. Oh, I think those I'm will ordering sell one a minute there, yeah. out there. You could put together a whole cabaret act just with yes. these four action figures. I think I saw all of those people at once. I never met Betty White. You, I, you I never met Betty White? One. No. 
Did you meet Dan. B. Arthur? No, I talked to Betty White on the phone, though. That counts. Oh, that does count. No, I saw B. Arthur. Did you see B. Arthur's show? She I did, would have loved. She did a one-woman show at Park West 15 years ago. People are still talking about that show. Yeah, I heard it was fabulous. Yeah, it was. It was. It was interesting. It was kind of surreal because she she sang a lot, and that probably wasn't something we needed to hear <laughs> that much. It worked for Julie Wilson. Stop it. That's right, Becky. We've mentioned your performing partner Tom Michael a couple of times mm-hmm. here. I want to know a little bit about Tom. Tell us about your partnership. When did you start working together? And did you guys just like hit it off immediately? And a little bit about how the collaboration works. Oh, Lord. We met in um, spring or summer of 1988 when I first moved to Chicago. And he heard me play at an open mic at a little club called Boombala. He hired me for a rehearsal. And uh, we, I didn't have a piano up here at the point, so we went to the DePaul's um, music rooms. And he wanted me to transpose up a tritone for the entire hour. He was very... Um, anal and and very, it was very controlled. And at the end of that, I thought, I don't think I ever have to make music with that person again. And he has become <laughs> the love of my life. He's my musical husband. Um, but I, I ended up playing for his first show, and then we started singing together. He's got a beautiful voice, and I was a fine performer on my own. But when we would sing together, people responded. And the interesting thing is that my organic spontaneity, the way I love to make music, he, him being very anal and very over-prepared, and we've kind of melded into one, we've morphed into one kind of being or one unit that works together based on each other's strengths. Mm. And I, I will just be very blunt. I would absolutely be sad beyond belief to never make music with him again. But I would, if I had to choose between losing the friendship or losing the musical partnership, I would lose the musical partnership. Really? He's such a good friend. I trust him. He's such a nice man. Uh, I've met him on many occasions. And he has a great voice. Could be. Who knows? There's got to be something better than this. There's got to be something better to do. Find me something better to do I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna get out I'm gonna get up, get out and do it There's gotta be something better than this There's gotta be something easy to learn And when I find me one thing that I'm meant to learn I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna get out I'm gonna get up, get out and learn it Something's coming I don't know what it is But it is gonna be Yeah, we saw you at the Acorn in Three Oaks just recently doing your Piano Men show that you mentioned earlier, the music of Barry Manilow, uh, Billy Joel, and Michael Feinstein. And uh, you also threw in a couple of surprise numbers. You sang a beautiful, beautiful rendition of Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word by Elton John. And the very sexy Congo player happens <laughs> to be my fiance. I was going to talk about Erwin. Uh, Erwin Berkowitz, is that yes, his name? Uh-huh, yes, yeah. you're, you're engaged. 
Who would have thought? Yeah. When's um, the big event? Uh, probably November of next year. We've both been married before. You know, the, he would be my third marriage. My mother is turning over wow. in her grave. Um, but uh, so is mine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell us how the collaboration with you and, and Tom works. Do you guys come at it through just sort of tossing ideas around and then you come up with maybe an idea for a show, a theme? And then you bring your own your own ideas to that. Well, we certainly do. We we decided that for us to grow and maintain um, surprising new audiences and getting better each year, that we were going to put together a new show every year. We didn't always have to have that show tour. It didn't always have to have sales ability, but we we wanted to make sure that there was all new material or pretty much new material. And then it was we kept our names in the press and we kept our audience viable in there. Um, as far as the ideas, so a show opens in April. We take two weeks off um, usually, and then we immediately start putting out ideas that we hate. And we <laughs> no no I, he'll go what about this and no and I will say something and then occasionally you never know when it is, but all of a sudden something will happen and we were in different cars. He was heading up to South Haven to see a friend in South Haven, Michigan with his partner, and I was in the car with Irwin heading up to South St. Joe to be with family, and I called him and I said, what about this? All of a sudden, the couples were like on speakerphone, you know, the guys, the partners were, of course, helping. I said that in air <laughs> quotes. And usually a lot of our ideas happen on a plane because oh. we are not, we're not rehearsing for another deadline. We're just sitting idle on something for two or three hours, and and that's when we just we gab, and we he'll say something, and one will say, "Oh, I don't hate that." And then that's usually a good sign. But we were kind of on this year's idea. The one we're we're working on now is called "The Highs and Lows of Musical Duos." We're a musical duo, but it's going to deal with especially like Simon and Garfunkel. There are fascinating backstories to. No um, kidding. Simon sure. and Garfunkel. And the, the way that people thought Art Garfunkel's career would take off and Paul Simon is the one who sold millions and, and mean things that Paul Simon said to Karen Carpenter. They're <gasps> fascinating. To Karen Carpenter? He, to her first Why album. Why would you be mean to Karen Carpenter? I hate him. <laughs> I hate him now. I hate him. <laughs> but she, Karen Carpenter is possibly in the show because, you know, when you think about families, Richard was the star. That's right. The stories between Richard Rogers and Larry Hart and the kind of partnerships and highs and lows of that and the end of that relationship, not just when Rogers and when Larry Hart died, but Rogers and Hammerstein. And Loggins and Messina, fascinating stories. <laughs> oh, really? And Sonny and Cher, fascinating stories. So we're not going to do Hall all of notes. them. Hall and Oates. We could go on. Go Minzy and Michael. Uh, yeah. So is this what you were talking about on those speaker phones in your cars yes. to Michigan? And then, we, oh, then we go on the computer, we research stories, and we start to write script, and we figure out what song is going to tell the story, and... Do you do the arrangements? Yes. And then you just you come up with it and you say, I forget, we'll, uh, I we'll mash up these job. two songs. I wake up in the middle of the night, and Tom usually does not like the ideas till I've proven that, or, or we, we'll try things that don't stay, but I love to reinvent. But even the Great American Songbook, I've revived more oldies than Viagra, is what I say. <laughs> I, um, I love to have you see, I want to take a song that you know and perhaps hear it with fresh ears. And it just, for me, has to be true to the lyric. I, I probably wouldn't be the person who is the purest 
uh, the revisionist, or mm-hmm. I would be the revisionist. Mm-hmm. Do you do much country western? I grew up in Pearson, Indiana. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't at first because I think I boycotted that. I, I to me, I wanted something that felt. Uh, this is so condescending to say, but at that point, I thought felt more sophisticated. I always fancied myself um, a tad more urban than I really am. Mm. Then, also, country music has grown incredibly sophisticated, and it's beautiful stories. It's a gorgeous milieu for storytelling, Mm -hmm. and it probably always was a nice milieu for storytelling. I just got caught up in the twang. It is pure storytelling. I was uh, researching something the other day, and I came across a listing of the best of the worst country western song titles. And I, I thought I'd throw a few of them out there. I'm and maybe ready. maybe something will stick and it'll appear on your next album. Of course, there's the very famous Drop Kick Me Jesus Through the Goalpost of Life. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that one. Get your biscuits in the oven and your buns in the bed. <laughs> Her teeth were stained, but her heart was pure. (laughs) I flushed you from the toilet of my heart. I wrote a song. My first song was I Flushed My Heart Down the Toilet of Love. I'm going to write write one. It's going to be The Oil May Be in Texas, Texas, but the dipsticks are all in D.C. (laughs) That's going to be my new country and song. You've done a lot of coaching and teaching. Can anyone sing? Can anyone be taught to sing? Can you teach anyone to everyone to have an ear and how to count and rhythm? You cannot teach everybody how to have a count. I believe everyone can sing. Whether you're going to appreciate everyone's voice, I can't control. But I believe there is a singer in everyone. Can I make your voice into Barbara Cook's? Possibly not. But can I make you a better performer? A, and again, I'm more of a coach than a voice teacher. I can take you and give you some tricks to m- make this more palpable for your audience and, and fun for you. My challenges I found at Northwestern, and, and it stayed true wherever I teach, because I teach theater master classes like at Rhode Island College and different things. The singers who love to listen to their voice are harder for me to work with than the people who aren't so concerned with the tone of their voice. Because I am lyric-driven. I believe your job is to communicate something. And Julie Wilson singing Till Her Dying Day is proof that we are moved by a life's tapestry and we're not always moved by perfection. We are moved by real, open-hearted communication. I think that we're all singers. I'm just not sure that the whole world appreciates all of us. So there, there's hope for us, Gary. Are you, are, are you attempting to, well, to I'm, revive I'm your my, lost cabaret career? My, I might have a new cabaret career. Could you have helped Florence Foster Jenkins? I'm one of the people who loved that movie. Uh, I, I love that movie. Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, you know what? I think that she loved every... Uh, if the stories about her are true... And again, there you, you read different factions of what she was and how much she really was in on the joke or whatever. But she, I believe, from what I've read, that she loved to sing. And she loved music. And that person, I have an enormous affection. I, play, I played open mic since the second I moved to this town. If you come, and it's not about listen to me, but if you come wanting to sing and be a part of a community of people who sing, 
I probably will love you. And if you come because you need to show what you got, and we all need to show what we got, we need to share. But if you're spending more time listening to yourself than just enjoying others and yourself and the community of music, mm-hmm. I, I have more affection for those people. So I would like Florence. I would have enjoyed her. You, you speak yeah. so eloquently and passionately about music, and you mentioned the, the gift that you clearly have. You, you are immensely gifted, and, and you've used that gift very, very wisely. So I'm almost uncomfortable asking you this question, but if you weren't a successful entertainer, award-winning cabaret star, is there something else in life you would have wanted to do if you had the chance? Eight million things. Give me one. I'll have to give you four because I can't give you one. (laughs) Four. I would have loved to have been a fashion designer for plus-size women. I would have loved to have been a choreographer, even though that's I don't have much dance training, but I do have great mover training. Like a like a, a legit uh, musical stage choreographer, yes. yeah. or, or or for seniors at the Breakers. I you know, I, <laughs> um, I was a marketing director. I had a fascinating small period of time where I would market things like Tina Turner or Dionne Warwick or In Excess or shows at a theater somewhat like the Chicago Theater. It was a 2,700-seat theater in Fort Wayne, Indiana called The Embassy. I still would, there? It's still there. Still and, up and running. Yeah, would negotiate. You know, Maynard Ferguson wanted six bottles of Cristal, and Donnie Marie wanted Pac-Man machines, and, and then uh, work with the talent, be the liaison with the talent when it was there. So... I came to Chicago to be a marketing director for Pegasus Theater. Oh, so, really? Yeah, so wow. it was the Frogs, and my first two shows were the Frogs and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Fascinating time to be a Pegasus. But I think that I would love to, there would always be something in me that is artistic, um, because all the things I picked, designer, choreographer, director, uh, marketing director of the arts, is in the arts. And that's where my heart is. And in all honesty, my heart is in my hands. My heart is in my playing. A lot of country western song themes are about leaving and, and about taking off. Uh, a couple other of my favorite titles were Thank God and Greyhound, She's Gone. <laughs> <laughs> my wife ran off with my best friend, and I sure do miss him. Oh. <laughs> are these real? These are real. These are real. When you leave, walk out backwards, so I'll think you're walking in. That's kind of sort of <laughs> sweet. but. <laughs> Sad, too. If you don't believe I love you, just ask my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a million of those. You've recorded a bit with some, well, girls like us, it's called. You and uh, two other women, and you've Mm -hmm. mentioned at least one of them already. You're going to be performing a new act. Is it a new act in November? We uh, tour around right now with a couple of different shows, but the new show, which is going to be at Davenport's November 19th and 20th, or 20th and 21st. Davenport's local uh, cabaret watering, watering hole, nice club, great place. It's called Girls Like Us, the songs of Barbara, Bette, and Bernadette. And yes, that Barbara. Streisand. Yes, and Bette Midler and Bernadette. You know, there's fascinating parallels. They've all been involved in Gypsy, or at least if, if you know, Barbara Streisand gets her oh, way. Right. And uh, they all really started out early in musical theater and kind of propelled into something differently. They've all been nominated and won for Grammys, and, you know, they're involved in movies and musical movies. And so these are three win- women that have really created superstardom uh, to some level 
That's going to be a great show. And, and so who, who's in it? You and... Myself, Laura Freeman, and Marianne Murphy-Orland were Girls Like Us. I have three brands to Becky Minzy or to Be Me Music. Mm-hmm. Be and Me Music. B-E-M-E Music. Yeah, yeah. that's your, uh, your, your label. It's my moniker. Your my moniker. Doing business as. But <laughs> it is Becky, and it's Becky and Tom, and then it's Girls Like Us. The girls doing the Carol King, Carly Simon, Journey Mitchell show just sells. It's such a great show. And of this, we think, has the potential to be like that because it has humor and great music. And then it has my trademark weird arrangements. Or, you know, we have it's a lot of three-part arrangements and then solos. And so it's three distinct personalities of women that uh, have fun together and make music. Well, did you see uh, Barbara on her last tour? I did not. Mm. Do you know, I've never seen Barbara. I've seen Bette a million times. I've seen Bernadette a million times. I worked at the Gentry for 19 years, which was one of the predominant um, gay entertainment rooms in Chicago. And the fact that I've never seen Barbara Streisand live in concert almost takes away my card of friend of gay men. So <laughs> it's a shame. Well, well Ro- Roscoe's seen it enough for the two of for, us. There you go. Yeah, yeah, you were just at the latest one. It, and it was fantastic. I'll, I'll never get over it. I'll never recover. So oh, much more oh. thrilling than the previous two times I saw I her. I that. Because I think she's finally just... Saying, gee, I enjoy being on this stage. I'm having a great time. Yeah. Something we'd like to do with our guests and our listeners will be familiar with this. Roscoe is, of course, familiar. It's his favorite part. We do something called Chat Pack, which is a sort of a random question type game. Okay. And I wonder if you would be uh, up for it with yeah. us for a few, for a few minutes. So I, I, I'm going to ask you to draw a card. And read that to us. And that, should we all play, Roscoe? Absolutely. You always like when we yeah. all play. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Have you ever bought anything from a TV infomercial? I bought a golf gadget. It was some sort of golf swing trainer thing. And it was totally ludicrous and a piece of crap. <laughs> oh, no. <Everybody laughs> and, it, and it helped me in no way whatsoever with my golf game. <laughs> oh, no. What about you, Becky? Well, I have thought many times recently on buying crepe erase for crepey skin. But then I read, of course, because I'm, I'm kind of, I go to the, do my little research on the, 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 you know, the Google, God's gift to the, the Bible now, the Google. And they said it was not worth it. But that, I almost bought crepe erase. Well, what, what could possibly be in crepe erase? Like magic ingredients, Would, and evidently they are magic. I didn't directly buy it, but they. <laughs> this is how old I am. They used to have TV ads for a marked deck of cards that you could buy at Weebolts, <laughs> <laughs> and and the cards were marked so that if you looked at the right place, you knew if the dot was here, it was a club, and then you could look at at other markings on the back of the cards so you could cheat at cards, which as a twelve year old I thought was a really important thing to be able to do. Your your mother would have been so proud. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I ended up throwing them away or something. <laughs> I remember these cards, but Weebolts oh. is uh, is an old uh, name for a department store That's, that was yeah, here the, in Chicago. They probably for many, closed many years, in the seventies, without question. Let's play another one. Okay. In what era would you like to have grown up? Oh, about twenty years from now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that ain't going to happen. Yeah. I mean, if I could have been wealthy, of course, in the 20s or 30s, where everything would have been in black and white, and I would have had an Art Deco penthouse in New York and gone dancing and dining every night. Gary? I think the Renaissance in Italy. But I I would have had to have had money. I would have had to have been a big time, like, Trader or 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 Money is always a or something. I mean, uh, yeah. Michelangelo, you're done with that ceiling yet? <laughs> <laughs> hey, when can I come in? 
when would you like to maybe have been um, born? If I had money, I would have loved to have been part of the round table, the Algonquin round table, or I would have loved in that 30s period where George Gershwin would play his own songs at parties and, and these incredibly talented, creative people would get together and try out music or the Brill Building period. And again, mm. they're both music, I'm sorry, but they're both, those are two eras that, and it's about collaboration and all these people being in the same spot at time and witty banter and art and great conversation and the, the kind of thing happening. My father's been gone for a very long time and I think about him a lot because he, he did odd things. And I remember when I was, I think I was 16 or 17, we went to New York and he thought it was very important to take me to the Algonquin Hotel and show me the round table and explain it to me. And then he bought me a book about it, which I still have. And I thought, well, you know, what an inter- you know my, my father was a Hoosier. He was from oh. Monticello, Indiana, and became a minister. Oh. So, you know, how interesting that he, you know, at 16, I didn't know who Dorothy Parker was. <laughs> <laughs> one more. Okay. What one goal do you hope to accomplish this year? Well, that's interesting. I'd like to get our podcast to 1,000 subscribers. This year, to ten thousand? Well, no, no, one thousand. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think. Well, ten thousand would be would be marvelous, but a um, thousand would be a great benchmark. Yes, a good place to be. I think that's a good goal for 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 me this year. <laughs> uh, my goal is to find balance and work smarter, not harder, because I am finding that it's very easy for me to prioritize my career and everybody else's needs and. I have a really amazing partner, and I want to savor my friends a little bit more and make sure that I keep play and friends and conversation as important as paying our mortgage. I want to enjoy. I want to find a better balance. You work all the time. I don't work all the time, and I'm working less because even with Irwin, I've tried to now keep a day off where I don't take business calls. Tuesday is our weekend. And part of Monday sometimes, depending upon the week. And um, that's been really good, just the kind wow. of errands and that So that's interesting. You just don't answer the phone? I don't. But um, I think it's about balance because I've had people say, why don't you move to New York? And I never wanted to move to New York because my family was from Indiana. And I loved Chicago. In my heart, I am a Chicagoan. This place, I knew the minute I was here, it was right. And I knew that in New York, most of my friends were killing themselves, and work was your life. And I wanted my friends and my family, I wanted music to be a part of my life, but not the totality of it. Mm. Have you met Marilyn May? I love Marilyn May, yes. I love Marilyn May. She never left St. Louis. Have you seen her perform? Yes. Whoa, she's amazing. She's, do you know who we're talking about, Gary? Yes, yes, I do. She's, mm-hmm. well into, she's well into her 80s now yeah, as well. Yeah. Marilyn May was famous because she was always on the Johnny Carson show. Mm-hmm. She didn't have a recording career much. She didn't have hit records. But if you went to New York and say, let's go see that woman we see on the Johnny Carson show all the time. So she's able to build her career around that. She was at the Iridium. which is the the jazz Jazz club club. in the basement below the Winter Garden. Not too long ago, two years ago, I just happened to be there on a Sunday night, and I got in to see her, and she was was fantastic. And one of the things that cracked me up was she did a very long medley from My Fair Lady, and I thought, you know, where where else am I going to go see see someone do a a 15-minute segment from My Fair Lady? It was just 
fantastic. What uh, goal uh, do you have for Damn yourself it. this year, I was Roscoe? trying to keep talking so that you would forget. <clears throat> Are you a goal setter? No, not really. My latest uh, unexpected goal that I have to accomplish is making amends to the IRS, <laughs> who, who sent me some unpleasant and unexpected correspondence last week. How can I be sure in a world that's constantly changing? How can I be sure where I stand? With you Whenever I Whenever I Whenever I Am away From you I wanna die Cause you know I wanna stay With you How do I Know Maybe you're trying to Flying too high can confuse me Touch me but don't take me down Whenever I Whenever I am away from you My alibi is telling people I don't care for you Maybe I'm Upside down, it's a pity I can't seem to find someone who's as perfectly loving as you uh, We are running long on time today We're going to move on to what is our usual closing segment, our Kiss of Death segment, where we... (laughs) How about that? (laughs) Where we pay tribute to someone who has passed. Now, we've been talking a little bit about country western song titles, and um, I think you will find this fascinating, uh, Becky. Gene Shepard passed away. Gene Shepard was a mainstay of the grand old Opry, whose feisty honky-tonk songs of the 1950s and the 1960s paved the way for the brash, assertive style of singers like Loretta Lynn. Uh, She passed away in Tennessee. She was 82 years old. Miss Shepard brought a freewheeling, cheeky style, I think you'd like that, Becky, to uh, the eternal themes of heartache, cheating, and marital discord, planting the flag for independent women. Stand By Your Man became Call Out Your Man in songs like The Root of All Evil is a Man (laughs) and Many Happy Hangovers to You. (laughs) She suggested she might be ready for a little adventure in Twice the Lovin' in Half the Time. And dared speak up for women on the wrong side of a love affair in a song called The Other Woman. Her long-time producer, Ken Nelson, fretted about her choice of songs. He said, it puts you in a bad light. We want to keep you as a sweet little country girl. Shepard replied, well, Ken, you just don't know me very well. She was small. She'd have to stand up on a stepladder to pick corn, one television host said by way of introduction, but her voice was powerful, pure, and penetrating. She was also an expert yodeler. This is a skill she showed off in her 1964 hit, Second Fiddle to an Old Guitar. 
1955, she became the third woman to join the Grand Old Opry after Minnie Pearl and Kitty Wells, and went on to perform there for more than 60 years. Her success as a solo act changed the landscape of country music, opening the doors for artists like Miss Lynn, Patsy Cline, and Tammy Wynette. It was a hard-won victory. At the beginning of her career, she met Hank Williams and told him she wanted to be a country star. And he said, oh yeah, well, there ain't much room in this business for a woman country singer. That was the general attitude back then, she said, but it only made me more determined. Weren't nothing going to stop me doing what I wanted to do, which was singing traditional country music the way it's supposed to be sung. She seemed like a feisty gal, someone we would have and loved to have on the show. She's only 82. Only 82. She was born Ollie Imogene Shepherd on November 21st, 1933, in Pauls Valley, Oklahoma, one of 10 siblings. Her father, Hoyt, and her mother, Allie Mae, were sharecroppers and moved the family to Visalia, California, when she was 11. Up until that time, they lived in Oklahoma in a home that had no water and no electricity. In high school, she formed the Melody Ranch Girls. Hey, weren't you in that, Roscoe? (laughs) Didn't we try to start something like that at a college one time? Singing and playing a bass fiddle that her parents had paid for by pawning furniture. On Saturday mornings, she sang on a local radio station. When Hank Thompson and his Brazos Valley Boys played a concert near Visalia, she was invited on stage to sing, and Thompson, impressed, brought her to Capitol Records. Her second single for the label, A Dear John Letter, in 1953, reached number one on the country charts and crossed over into the top pop ten. Two years later, she was invited to join Red Folly's ABC variety show called Ozark Jubilee and the Grand Old Opry. Although Miss Shepard never again reached the summit of the charts, she turned out dozens of top 10 and top 40 hits for the next two decades. She had hits with Beautiful Lies, and I Thought of You in 1955, and the following year recorded Songs of a Love Affair, one of the first country concept albums. Her full-tilt, honky-tonk style at odds with the country pop Nashville sound kept her struggling for a hit in the late 1950s and early 60s, however. She rebounded with second fiddle to an old guitar and two songs in the top 10 in 1966, If Teardrops Were Silver, beautiful title, and a comedy duet with Ray Pillow called I'll Take the Dog. In 1960, she married the country singer Hawkshaw Hawkins, who died three years later in a plane crash, the same plane crash that killed Patsy Cline. Shepard was left a widow, eight months pregnant, and raising a toddler. I don't often mention this part in our uh, tributes here, but I thought this was uh, really quite something. In addition to her second husband, Miss Shepard is survived by her sons Don, Harold, and Corey, her brothers Sonny and Jerry, her sisters Frances and Carolyn, 25 grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. Quite a life. In later years, she toured extensively, and she was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2011. An ardent champion of traditional country music, Miss Shepard served as president of the Association of Country Entertainers, formed in 1974 after the Country Music Association named Olivia Newton-John as the female vocalist of the year. She's a very sweet lady, I'm sure, she told the Edmonton Journal in 2012. But what she sang wasn't country. (laughs) Gene Shepard. 
You sent me a recording of a song. Is that the Dolly Parton song, yes, Jolene, Jolene, that you and the girls do? Yeah. It's, it's fabulous. We're going to play a little bit of that. Roscoe, always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Gary. Lovely to see you. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, go to our website at www.booth-one.com and subscribe. And uh, a reminder once again that we'll be at the Chicago Podcast Festival live on Saturday, November 19th at the Steppenwolf Theater, where our guest will be IO founder and owner Charna Halpern. Halpern. Uh, the unsung architect of modern comedy and Chicago improv impresario, partner of Del Close. That's going to be really exciting. And sadly, it's about a month away. Yeah, and you know what's sad is that same night Becky is going to be at um, Davenport. Davenport. But two nights. She's two there. Nights. She's there two nights. Are you there on Saturday, Sunday? Yes. We, oh, okay. We've got to come on. We've got to go to the. We Sunday have to go. Show. It's yeah. only fair. I may just stay up. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll probably be besieged by fans who have seen us the night before. Uh, that would be exciting. Without question. No autographs, please. Becky Menzi, you have been a wonderful, wonderful guest. So pleased to have you, and we hope you had fun. I had a ball. Oh, Oh, that's awesome. Buddy Hackett was in a musical called (laughs) I Had a Ball, wasn't he? He was. (laughs) For Booth One, I'm Gary Zabinski. And I'm Roscoe. And saying so long and keep listening. Say goodnight, Becky. choice of men, but I could never love again. He's the only one for me, Jolene. I had to have this talk with you. My happiness depends on you and whatever you decide to do, Jolene. Jolene, 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 Jolene. Oh.